Hello, everyone. This is Julio Cotto at the National Hispanic Institute, joined by Paola Hernandez and Ernesto Nieto, the president and founder of the organization. This is one of our info pods for families and members and participants of the National Hispanic Institute. Today, we're going to be discussing the 2018 NHI summer theme, a theme that will be part of the great debate, LDZ and CWS experiences. Ernesto, tell us a little bit about this year's theme. Thank you, Julio. Well, first of all, hello, NHI Nation out there. And uh, actually, it came from my concerns that have to do with fake news. You know, we live in that era today, and we live in the Trump era where we don't know who to believe, what words mean, what terms mean, what their implications are from a social, economic, and political point of view. And in my belief or set of beliefs, as we move forward, news labeling, social labeling is going to get worse, not better. And so it's going to be very important for the youth community of the National Hispanic Institute to become adept at reading and decoding what some of these labels tend to mean or may imply, so that they don't look only at the literal, but they're able to decode and decipher what may lie underneath a particular message. The idea, for example, of bad hombres, the idea of alien, what does that mean? What does alien really mean? What does it connote? What fears that it tends to raise in the minds and hearts of people? What does the word disadvantage mean? What does the word privileged mean? What does the word cultural heritage mean? So given all of these labels, given all of these modern ways of communicating, I thought it would be good to engage our freshmen in terms of the great debate and learning how to decipher and decode and gain meaning and gain insight into the use of these words. So I hope that gives you a longabout way of saying <laughs> we're in for a good ride, we're in for a good talk, we're in for a good examination. All right, so we're just going to read through it a little bit here. Go ahead. And give uh, give. Uh, the listening audience, you can follow along, especially when you have your own copy. Uh, the title this year is Social Labeling and the Effects of Domestic and International Community Intervention Policies and Actions Throughout the Latino World. When President Lyndon Bain Johnson introduced his War on Poverty initiatives, it was intended to draw public attention to the plights and real human challenges faced by particular sectors of the United States community who are in dire poverty. During this era, a family in poverty was defined as a family of four making less than $4,800 a year. Mexican-Americans alongside Puerto Ricans, Native Americans, and African-Americans were made part of what was called a protected class of people who were to receive special attention and services. Over half of these population groups had incomes that were well below the established poverty line. So the code word here is what do we mean by protected class? And what were the social and legal implications of that? Essentially, Robert F. Kennedy, not LBJ, was the first person involved in publishing a report about poverty in America back in those days. And they found that clearly one-third of Americans in the United States were families that were making less than $4,800 
a year for a family of four. And what's interesting about that was that the study showed that 50% of the Mexican-American, Puerto Rican, and, uh, and Native American communities were, were making less than 48. And, but overwhelmingly, the larger percentage of Americans uh, who were making less than $4,800 a year were white Anglo families. That particular notation was never made too public. The attention went to the protected class. And in my view, that began the evolution of a social resentment to people who felt protected in a special way under the law. And so that's the one of the first social labels, that concept of when it's a legal term, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. protected class. Like it means protected from something. employment discrimination by law. We're listening to Paula Hernandez, who's chiming in on this conversation. <laughs> Welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Ernie. Go ahead. What were you saying again? No, no, no. And, and just going off of what Julio was saying, it's it's a legal term. So when we talk about the protected class, um, and if you look at the theme, it, it defines what a protected class was, and it was the groups protected from the employment discrimination by law. There were people who had suffered inordinately from poverty and who had been the subjects of racial discrimination. And as a result of racial and the imposition of racial barriers and practices, they had suffered to the extent that they were not able to keep up with the American mainstream and therefore suffered severe educational, social, cultural, and income and income barriers and problems and issues. Funny enough, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking of the concept uh, like in world history of protectorate Mm -hmm. of a kind of a a nation, pseudo nation that's protected by the bigger, larger country, but it's not really independent. Yeah. Bigger, uh, quote unquote, better. (laughs) So paragraph two, by this time in the mid 1960s, global scholars had taken to referring to most, if not all of Latin America as part of the third world. Hundreds of families in poverty fled Puerto Rico in the 1950s at the end of the Second World War, seeking employment and opportunity, as well as a means to cash in on the newly affirmed U.S. citizenship. And what we put here is that in New York, uh, a prevalent example of where this took place, Puerto Ricans were now 9% of the city's population by the mid-20th century. Waves of Cubans started migrating to the United States upon the Fidel Castro-led revolution in 1959. This period reigned in an era of decades of U.S. military and political intervention in Latin America, uh, places uh, we list here as Guatemala, Brazil, Chile, uh, Cuba, uh, Republica Dominicana, the Dominican Republic. As the world entered the 1960s, various Latin American nations were plagued by violent military conflicts. Countries started fighting for stability and survival amid skirmishes between liberation theologian clergy communist and social militia groups, armed indigenous tribes, military juntas, and an oligarchy trying to protect their hold on land, titles, and political power. Now, out of this comes another term, right? And third world countries. Uh, We begin the labeling process all over again. Underdeveloped. What did underdeveloped mean? Culturally, linguistically, educationally. What is an underdeveloped? It It began to develop in a, a worldview or a mindset of certain countries being less than, and the less than was in comparison, obviously, to life in the United States, that we had better standards, 
I had, we had better living conditions. Now, somebody may say, why is this topic so important to ninth grade students? Why, why should they be involved in, in, this kind, in these kinds of discussions? Well, in my view, these are opportunities to further the cognitive, individual, and intellectual development of kids. They need dense topics, content, to exercise their abilities to critically analyze and things that have meaning to them historically, linguistically, and culturally, and psychologically is why we select themes of this nature. Earlier, you and you and I were having a conversation about, you know, why is it that this work and this type of training uh, is essential? And while it, I think it does have uh, transferable knowledge skills to the classroom, to your career, what we're really trying to do is provide an experience for young people to develop so that they're ready in their 30s and their 40s to make these types of decisions, of sit in the rooms where these labels, policies, or concepts are are debated and determine whether they're good or bad or what have you. Well, I think what's important to note is that these matters are realities today. These are not realities simply of yesterday or in our history books, there is not a Latino student of N at NHI that I've not met that when they go off to a Notre Dame or a Harvard or a Washington University or any university in the Northeast or anywhere, even in Texas or New Mexico, that they don't hear the word minority. They don't hear the word affirmative action. What does that mean? Or protected class or privileged class. They, they're confronted with these terms to disarm them, and oftentimes they don't know exactly how to either defend themselves or defuse their implications. It, it's very important, I think, for young men and women to be armed and for parents to realize that their children, living in the reality of a very race-based country, that they be very alert to how their children position themselves and how they perceive themselves in relationship to the world. You know, Paul, I was going to ask you something. In an earlier conversation, you you mentioned and took pride in I was just about being, to bring that up. being a border <laughs> a border person, yeah. a, a border woman. The first paragraph is really domestic in nature. It talks a mm -hmm. lot about the U.S. and then we jump to Latin America. Where, if any, do you see the connection, or why is this connection being made? Well, I, I, I was actually just about to bring that up, you know, and in the second episode of, of Notables or Notables, uh, we talked about that label, right? The, the El Paso girl or the Juarez girl, the border girl. Um, and that's very much how I, how I identify myself and how I, I know that a lot of border people identify themselves. I, that's how I forged a lot of my friendships in NHI uh, because there was a lot of similarities across uh, McAllen, Brownsville, et cetera. Uh, but when looking at terms like a protected class or like a third world, um, these are terms that are being used to undermine people, uh, even if, if, you know, they're meant to sound nice or if they're meant to have people uh, believe that, you know, they're developing nations or that they're a protected class. Uh, it is a label that was imposed on them that they don't necessarily understand the connotations of and they've never uh, defined for themselves. So when Ernesto asked, what does being a Juarez girl mean and what does that mean to you and is that a negative thing? Um, I think that a lot of people maybe have never thought about what the labels that are imposed on them or that they impose on themselves mean to them. And they've never bothered uh, to redefine those labels. And I think that that's, that's why this is important. Well, and, and at the same time, 
they're also being asked to surrender their identity mm-hmm. and return for scholarship. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are a minority. Blanket, blanket Latino. Yeah. Blanket minority. <laughs> if you put minority there, you're going to get money. And there is a popular belief, you know, that if you got into Rice University, you must have gotten in not because of your qualifications, but because of affirmative action and because you were of a protected class. And it's really interesting. I want to make mention of this because I, I, I just am kind of a policy historian and because I'm old enough to have remembered and been a part of this effort back in the 1960s. Affirmative action was never met in its original law or policy to infer that people had an advantage. Affirmative action was developed as a policy because of the unscrupulous practices of employers. And so the idea was to catch employers or to, or to warn employers against using unscrupulous processes to eliminate certain populations from consideration into certain job categories. So a civil rights law, a civil rights case would be filed when they saw a white employer or a white supervisor using less than ethical practices to eliminate. It was never designed to give anyone an advantage. Mm -hmm. It was never designed to protect someone and give them an employment preference over someone else. So it was, it was never an in, rather like a, a hold or a stay? No, it was designed to, to warn and, mm-hmm. and give uh, applicants who happen to be Latino or African American or Native American or women the opportunity to test the, the, the means by which they were being evaluated to see if they were being singled out and submerged mm-hmm. in the process. I can I personally witness a particular personnel director in state government, I won't name the agency or the person, who would take all applications and put the best Latino applications at the very bottom and the very worst applications at the very top, along with other competitors. And so the final review would take place by the president or the executive director, and he would obviously automatically eliminate the less qualified Latinos, never knowing that the better the, the better uh, candidates were at the very bottom of the pile of applications that they were. And this way, certain people were never considered, and they would go. So what happened? Well, what happened is that there was less unethical practices that eliminated them, and that's why affirmative action was was adopted because those practices had been in place for generations. It wasn't just in the 1960s. Well, and, you know, we're, I'm looking here at the theme and we have a note about, it's actually from archives.gov, that the EEO laws were passed to correct a history of unfavorable treatment of women and minority groups. But even though it was for that reason, it seems that it created a political philosophy. It created a, a policy philosophy of, how you approach a community or a people, even though it maybe were labor laws, I feel like the effects took place in all types of policy beyond labor. Well, it created an attitude. It created an, an overwhelming attitude of preferential treatment, which has never been true. So let me get into this next paragraph. In the U.S., federal economic classifications and other social labels entered the American lexicon. Mexican-Americans were labeled as minorities, at-risk, disadvantaged, and special needs populations, thus demanding different forms of intervention. In today's world, these population identifiers remain in place 
and have further been identified as people of color and part of the nation's Rainbow Coalition movement. Towards the latter part of the 20th century, third world nations, now called developing nations, saw multinational corporations seek opportunities to maximize profits by relocating to America, Latin America under a mission of economic development and strategic foreign investment. Amidst turmoil, a prevalent view of need and dependence on U.S. foreign investors and even U.S. charity was adopted as an economic strategy throughout Latin America. Well, there you have the same. It is the positioning, the social and the devaluing of entire nations that were being economically exploited. And that practice continues even today. I mean... Do you think that was strategic, though? So place these labels on these four nations, then go and mess with their social political environment. And then once they're hurting, then go in to save them. Well, I, you know, it is certainly a strategic advantage when you go into a nation and with the intent of creating a low-end workforce. Mm -hmm. Because if you go into China, if you go into Latin America or Mexico, if some... Juarez is the capital of maquilas. Right, I mean, I, the I maquiladora, get it. the whole thing, is that you're purposely playing under employment wages. Mm -hmm. You're purposely doing these things you're, you're, because you don't have to deal with that in the United States. You know, unions and other for, forms of protest mm -hmm. or protections would, would certainly speak up pretty quickly. But, it, but because they're developing countries, underdeveloped countries, backward countries it creates a social justification for how you economically treat that population. I was right now just looking up, I mean, because you, you talked mm -hmm. about it also in Maquilas, the Bracero program, mm -hmm. which was the name of a policy. But in it, there's a Spanish word, but it means something. So you end up framing, again, rooting a immigration policy mm -hmm. on manual labor, on someone who uses their mm -hmm. hands. And you, you, so you almost box in... And it's in Spanish, so it must only be Latinos. <laughs> but let me ask you this. Well, I, I wanted to say about the Bracero program. I mean, just the use yeah. of the term. Mm -hmm. The use of the term says, we got low-income, low-skilled people who justifiably give us a right to pay them below below living wages. We can we can mistreat them. We can give them the least of services. Uh, we don't have to do because they fall under this category. Can you imagine the margins of profits that created for growers and owners of different kinds of industries. It, it was justifiable by policy. And so on the one hand, it could be seen as we're helping out this underdeveloped country. And on the other hand, it's obviously leaning, obviously defined, obviously done purposely for the bottom line considerations of American industry. Let me keep going here because then I have, a I, have a, I have a question on that last note. Today, the question that needs answering is whether or not the assignment of these social identifiers, at-risk, third-world, developing, need-based, minority, have also caused serious damage to the modern-day global Latino identity. Have these types of terms, concepts, and policy approaches imparted negative, long-term social effects extending beyond the original intent of U.S. domestic civil rights and Latin American foreign policy legislation of the late 20th century and early 21st century. The question is whether or not this federal legislative and executive action of 50 plus years ago, which led to social labeling, has resulted in Latinos adopting a needs view of themselves as a population. 
Has this simultaneously caused majority population Americans to view Latinos as deficient, underdeveloped, or backwards? If so, is this the continuation and promotion of this is the continuation and promotion of this worldview beneficial or detrimental to future Latino communities, particularly the view adopted by future leaders? If so, what replacement worldview should be considered and what policy changes should be considered? to alter the perceptions Latino ha Latinos have about themselves and their own communities. The question I, because we kind of, we talked a lot of a few of these policy examples that we provide. Are we talking about the merits of these policies, whether they were good policies or bad policies? Like, what are we really talking about? Are we talking about that these were negative policies? What is the conversation we really want to have? Well, there is a symbolic and there and there's a literal, right? Let's take a look at, at what has been the fallout of these policies, not from an application point of view, but from the standpoint <laughs> of what kind of mindsets it's created. That's going to be the argument for the freshman kids who get involved in a great debate. They can understand motive. They can understand well-placed or misplaced. You can argue that. But at the end of the day, the idea was, what did it do psychologically to the worldviews of the populations who were being labeled as such? What, what does it do to a child's worldview who says, I'm a minority, I'm disadvantaged, I come from the darker side of families, my skin color is deficient? What does that do to that young child's energy, vision, capacities, willingness to participate in the American experience, it is, in many cases, in my view, self-defeated. Is that it places unnecessary barriers on people to see themselves as being investors in society. And so they tend to describe themselves as needy citizens. Whenever you talk to a Latino elected, and I'll say it out on, on, on this particular <laughs> Uh, 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 program. Most of the time, whenever you listen to a Latino politician or, po or policy person, they talk about Latinos from the standpoint of need and problems. They depict, uh, I love what's going on with this male study going on at the University of Texas, but it's all need-based. It's all problem-deficient driven. It's, it's looking at the negative side of their development. When we talk about dropouts, we're mostly talking about who, I mean, there's an implied definition that we're talking mostly about Latinos and African-Americans. Well, so in these examples, and right, these, these are things that I imagine students and families are going to discuss. These elected officials, right or left or center independent, a lot of them are talking about federal policy or state policy that is rooted in these social labels. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to understand where is it we want them to go because you could easily get, I feel like we could get a lot of time lost talking about, well, if you don't fund this initiative, there goes the college what? admission support or there goes money for bilingual ed. I mean, I don't know that that's what we're actually trying to talk here about whether these policies should or shouldn't exist. But I do feel that in a leadership level, that is what our leaders are caught up in, is trying to almost preserve or maximize or reframe existing policy rooted in these social labels? I think that the question 
revolves around how we wish to engage future generations of Latinos. Are we going to rally around our potential to contribute to the American experience because of our asset capacities? That's one point of view. Or are we going to be driven by a need view of ourselves, a, def a deficit view of who we think we are? And if these terms, if these labels impact our psyche and impact the way in which define we define and perceive the world, then we're always going to be behind the eight ball and always going to be the minimalist in the way we approach future policy. So the idea for us, and I think the argument ought to be in the great debate, how do we make the jump from this to this? Imagine a, a society where these terms are no longer impacting your psyche. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And, and what does that look like? What does that look like? What does that sound mm -hmm. like? And how do we have to redefine our words? They're going to have to search deeply for new answers. And so therefore, it's not really a affirmation or condemnation of the past or even of the present, but rather what's going to happen moving forward. How do we unfold a new future? How do we envision it? How do we? And they're going to have to talk about that because it's not an either or situation. You know, it's very easy to talk about the damning effects of these policies and how it affected the psychological framework of people and how it affected their worldview and understanding of themselves. And we can point the fingers that these are bad. The point is, it, it is bad, it has been bad, it's continued to be bad. And in the present administration, we, it continues to be bad. The, the point is, is that you can't do anything about that. But 20 years from now, what do we do to seed new thoughts? What are these new thoughts? What, what, is, what, are, what is the new nomenclature? Mm -hmm. How do we reposition? How do our public officials, Latino, Latina public officials, what other vernacular are they going to be taught to use? So that we're not in our earnest attempts and our frank attempts to increase quality of life of Latinos is driven by inspiration, is driven by potential, is driven by promise rather than the drudgery, the backwardness of who we think we might be. Help me out here with something with Paula. I mean, how, where do you see the, the real timeliness or even relevance of this theme, especially given the climate of the last few days? of the last month in this country and seeing young people activate themselves. How do you make that connection between what's happening, I think, on a positive, uh, interesting way with a lot of young people, but given this question and this theme? Well, I think that in the past few days and in the past you know, few weeks, we've seen young people and their ability to change systems and the fact that their words... Uh, are, are literally changing systems and are changing mindsets. Uh, and this is something that we've seen with our NHRs, or we've talked about um, having NHRs do. Um, but when we talk about Latino elected, public public elected leaders and the, and the words that they use and the policy that they push forward, uh, we're not necessarily talking about, you know, the sitting Latino elected public officials. It's about the future Latino public, public elected officials. And, and those are our kids, right? So these great debaters are going to be the Latino public elected officials. Um, and we've seen that this generation is unafraid and this generation is, um, has no qualms with using technology and, and working with one another and being loud and, um, agitating and agitating the status quo is, is something that we're going to need to do in order to get rid of, 
of words like at risk or third world or need based or I'm a minority or, or I'm needy. Um, and so especially with these great debaters and with the youngest generation of kids that we work with, we're going to start changing some, changing some minds and through them changing their families and through them changing the schools and the communities that they go to. So it's, it's exciting. We've, again, we've, we've stayed a lot and it's written that way, the theme about public policy, foreign policy, uh, outside of the policy or elected official box, what are the, what are the effects or connections about social labeling and their effects beyond the box of government policy, public policy, elected officials? I, I wanted to speak a little bit to this very controversial thing on guns mm-hmm. and my view of what I think I see. Uh, without having to state my position, I'll just say it. I am so anti-gun of any sort, period. I, I'm not going to go any further than that. What, what is grabbing my heart is watching young white kids who have a sense of ownership in society argue their case so amazingly well versus DACA kids mm-hmm. who have been, for all practical purposes, forgotten and swept under the carpet because they have no rights. So you're looking at two very distinct populations. One that's privileged, (laughs) one that has no privilege. You're looking at two worldviews and both arguing human rights because the rifle Mm -hmm. situation is a human right issue. It's not a civil rights. It's not just a legal right. It's a human right issue. But it seems to gain legitimacy when it comes out of what Steve Merritt used to call the cultural heritage class, people who see themselves as owners of of American society. And they're arguing at their own community and saying enough is enough. And yet, when human rights issues are being argued by people who are seen as underclassed and not connected to the society. Alien. (laughs) And alien and bad hombres, they're given a different social meaning and context. Yeah, at that point, you're a rebel rouser, you're a, you're a loud mouth. Um, and it's funny that you bring that up. Uh, these kids have gone to the same schools. They've been raised in the same country. They've been raised in the same communities. But I, I don't know that I'd ever thought about that. As one of the, it seems like it's, it's one of the effects because it's a, it's a, they're, they're rooted in labels <laughs> and social labeling of one argument versus another. Because, yeah, there, there is human life loss at mm-hmm. both ends. There's violence uh, at both ends, um, and there's a lot of young. Fa- I mean, there's a lot of families affected on both ends. And, and and that's one of the things that I was raising to one of the interviews we had the other day, when I was talking to Carlos Paz, and I was making comments that I don't see Latinos elected officials, and I think Paula is absolutely correct. I don't see them behaving or articulating from an ownership point of view like these kids from Florida are. I, I think they're appealing to the American public for, 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 for sympathy and for they want to condemn and deal with the indignities of how DACA kids are being dealt with. But it's not from the standpoint of ownership. It's from the standpoint of justice and human justice. Mm-hmm. 
and it's not the same context as the kids from Florida are arguing. They're arguing this is our country and we have the right to talk about what laws we want to protect us. And their parents are, are, are supporting them in that effort. I think it's fantastic. I support it all the way. But there's two different meanings coming out of two very similar populations, both suffering human tragedy for whatever the reason, for whatever the purpose. So I just wanted to make sure that as we deal with these subjects of disadvantage, minority, and I think Paula is right on target when she said maybe that the linguistics involved may not be part of today's current Latino leadership because they're caught up in the remedial aspects of Latino community life. Maybe the new nomenclature, the new lexicon, if you want to call it that, the new meaning is going to come out of young minds mm -hmm. in a very different form. Let me get this last point here because I think this is going to frame the work that our, that the students are going to have. In the 2018 NHI leadership programs, discussions will revolve around these questions that we just articulated. Ninth grade great debate students will conduct a critical examination of the issues surrounding current practices and social labeling to determine whether or not any social harm and injury are being fostered in the thinking of Latinos that would constitute grounds for change or not. 10th grade LDZ students will deliberate the benefits and consequences of social labeling with the intent of submitting modern day proposals that alter existing social narratives from the perspective of a community that needs to a community that invests, Men uh, that type of mentality. 11th grade students at the Collegiate World Series will apply inquiry-based methods to identify various community options for the use of social labeling with the intent of identifying the best alternatives possible that provide Latinos a healthier view of themselves as a collective. Gotcha. I'd love to be a student. <laughs> so we had this conversation. We've, we've talked about this theme now. Now, what is it that the work, the charge for each group is going to be starting with the freshmen? Uh, well, I, I think that we talked about it right now. It's imagine a world where you're the Latino elected, you know, leader, uh, what are what are social harms that happened or maybe didn't happen um, with old thinking? And what are you going to do about the future? What kind of Latino leader you're going to be um, that fosters a different kind of mentality uh, by using different types of, of words? I, I can see kids arguing. I, I would argue that maybe it was a necessary evil. You know, maybe the use of these terms were necessary in order for Johnson to get these policies adopted, maybe maybe he appealed to the moral aspects of American life. You know, these are suffering human beings who need help. And it is our Christian duty to somehow offer them assistance. And be saviors. Yeah, and so he had to disable the population very much like we really don't know what caused Abraham Lincoln to write the Proclamation of Emancipation. You, we really don't know all of the motives, economic, political, racial, you know, race-based, Christian values. We really don't know the mixture of motivations that went into that decision. We'll let historians argue that. In the case of labeling, we know that their motives, we know that their motives are not always pure. We know that sometimes they're political. It's up to the kids to find and decipher what those motives were and then determine, was there good that came from it? Is it something we want to preserve or is it something we need to get rid of? And if we get rid of it, what do we replace it with? Yeah. 
the 10th graders. I know normally the theme isn't unified between all three groups. This year there is that, there's this theme that ties them all. Um, but here, I know, Paola, you were talking about modern day ideas. This seems like this is the, the place for it, the LDZ. Yes. Uh, you know, we, we talk about, okay, uh, what are you going to replace it with? But at the, at the 10th grade level, you go into how are you going to replace it? Um, so what are proposals that you're bringing to the table um, that are going to lead this community to see themselves as a community that invests, as a community that has assets, as a community that is not needy or, or um, an other? Um, and instead of otherizing themselves as, uh, you know, Latinos who need to rectify the wrongs, uh, they're starting to imagine and put that into a plan. We have to remember that at the LDZ, the experience is governance and the capacity to legislate. So if you're in the position to legislate, imagine yourselves being in a U.S. Congress or a state legislature, and you're going to design public policy. Right? And you want to articulate and define not only what that public policy ought to be, but what its intent is. What is, what is its final end? What impact do you want to have on the psyche of the receiving aspect or the receiving public? So maybe we didn't know the motives of, of uh, Lincoln and of Johnson, but now we will know the motives of these kids who are we writing their own legislation. We want them on the record. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know what they're going to imagine because it's got to be it's got to be strategic and it's got to be targeted and it has to have a rationale that's defensible what what is what is the new vocabulary what what is it that and and it's fascinating you know we play this this little game with kids when we say you only have a hundred dollars left and there is this african-american group and then there's this Latino group, and then there's this Asian group. And which group would you invest to get to double your money, you know, in, in 30 days or give it up? And mostly every NHI kit will immediately invest in the Asian group because they consider them smart. Now, I understand that public perception. Where did it come from? You know, school tests, college test course. You know. Somewhere along the line, we have perceptions, operating perceptions about the capacities of people. So if you have the ability to rebrand Latinos of the future, how would you rebrand them? And how would you support that? And how do you make it come true? And I think that's going to be a great opportunity, I think, for the LDZ students. Yeah, and I, and I think that even the, the LDZ, again, the game is this government game. I think that this governance lesson... It'll be something that goes with them because, you know, foundations and philanthropic dollars are framed a lot around need, not investment. Right. You know, uh, schools are governed around need, not opportunities and investment. A lot of nonprofits operate, um, you know. Most Latino nonprofits operate on a need basis. There are some cities and municipalities Mm -hmm. that thrive on a growth model and an innovation. We're going to redesign our city. And then there are some that react to change and they get caught. Well, you so, know, Gloria used to get upset because the valley was often described as the poorest part of the United States. And everyone went around saying, we're the poorest community of the entire country and therefore deserving of these grants from the federal government. And it would throw Gloria into mm-hmm. a tizzy because that she never saw the valley in that context. And so, yeah, uh, she, if, if you talk to her, she'll say, the Valley is a chief exporter 
of brain power. Isn't that interesting? Well, and, and we're going to take this. I'm going to argue that. You would argue El Paso? <laughs> yeah, I would well, argue. Well, maybe from what is. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. Well, we're going to take this conversation also south uh, into Panama and, and discuss it with students from from America Latina. And I think that the same conversation holds. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of when you ask a lot of our members down there and you ask mm-hmm. them about economic development, growth, mm-hmm. becoming a world players, a lot of times it's still in context to the European the, Union mm-hmm. or the United mm-hmm. States um, it's always in reference to, to or in mimics else. a lot of a lot of times. So I think that the conversation will carry across. Finally, the eleventh grade students, they're going to have to use inquiry based methods to identify various community options for the use of social labeling, with the intent of identifying the best alternatives uh, possible to provide as Latinos a better view of themselves. So, what are we what are what are, what are we challenging those seniors with? What we're challenging is. <laughs> Seniors is to use a method of breaking down. They they need a methodology. They can't simply state or describe something as harmful. They have to break down what that means. They have to show evidence of what that's made of. They have to analyze each part. They have to see for what is. They have to see what it stands for. What its value or lack of value is. They need to break the pieces down into multiple, into micro pieces. They need to be highly analytical and putting it together and determining what caused this to occur or what is causing this and what are all alternatives. As you well know, in the CWS, they're given intellectual challenges, a problem, a challenge that they must look at, break down, and they have a way, a methodology of breaking it down, looking at it, and they call it the investigative and they have the trial base, and they test out a thesis, and we want them to think in logical, organized, research-based methods. And so the idea is to take the same kind of thing and to look at those words and to attempt to understand it from that investigative point of view. What seem to have been the driving motivations to achieve what in, and then what would be better alternatives to achieve this other end and be able to show how those things would work. We're coming to the end of this conversation. Um, We have a lot of families, uh, students listening to this as well as volunteers and trainers Uh, for both of you. What would be something you would tell Ernesto, the parents as they listen to this, may re-listen to it or they're listening to it in the car as a family or streaming it at home what would it be some questions or what would you want them to take away from this conversation as, as a family? I want parents to know from me, just as a guy that loves them and just adores their children. We're in a very dangerous era. We're in a very dangerous era as family, the, fam- the institution of families. We don't talk to our kids anymore. We sit next to them. We're all playing with our phones or with our laptops or whatever. We live in a world of technology where we don't communicate, we don't share ideas, we don't argue ideas or investigate ideas together or ask ourselves critical questions. We look for answers uh, through Google. We paste, we cut and paste answers. Uh, we We don't do the critical thinking. And what's happening is that we're developing functionaries in society, not participating members of society that brings skills, uh, competencies, and world experience to assist society improve its way of life. 
I am very worried about what's going on in the center of the families. We're merely caretakers of our children, and we do a good job of it. But are we engaging our children to think mentally, to think deeply, to think in comprehensive ways? I would say, I was talking to a mother the other day, and I was saying to her that we spend 97% of our time instructing or correcting our children. We spend very little time collaborating with our children. And these are opportunities for mom and dad to get into the subjects and get into discussions without phones, without computers, and just get into the discussions of what that family believes these things to be true or untrue. I think it's a great conversation. Paula, you've been a trainer, mm -hmm. a volunteer, a coach, a project administrator. Um, you've worked in the school. These themes can sometimes be uh, a little overwhelming mm -hmm. or not typical homework or what do you find in your Norton anthology? <laughs> what would be some tips you'd give to the students listening about how to approach this big, dense, lots of words on, on two pages here? Uh, I think that NHI for me um, was the first place that I ever owned who I was because I, I decided to um, own the labels that were placed on me and redefine those labels. Um, it's the first place, and, and I talked about it earlier, that I found who I was, uh, because I kind of felt like I belonged in all sorts, all sorts of little labels and I could redefine and, and place, um, the terms that I wanted on myself. Um, and I, and I'm really excited that, that that is now a conversation that every single great debater is going to get to have. Um, you own how you define yourself. Um, you get to create whatever labels you want for yourself. Um, and, and define them however you want. And your family plays a role in that. Um, and your community plays a role in that. And you can you can be whoever you want to be. Um, you just need to kind of own the process and be part of the process. Um, so this is this is a big opportunity for a lot of freshmen, a lot of 14, 15 year olds to start asking away at, at who they really are and who they want to be, who they want to become, who they want their little brother or sister to be uh, in the future. I know that I think, and I used to think about that a lot. I still think about that a lot. I have a, a sister who was four years old, three years old when I went through my first NHI program. And a lot of how I defined myself and how I defined my experience with NHI uh, was framed around my sister who was going to come in 10 years after me. Um, so I think that this is a great opportunity for families and for students to start um, analyzing and reflecting on who they want to become, what words they want to adapt, what uh, what kind of community and what kind of people they want to be. Um, and, and this is exciting to start at a young age with this number of people. Well said. Have fun with the text. Ask a lot of questions. <laughs> You're going to have to agree and disagree, so feel free to take issue. Uh, parents, ask your children tough questions and students ask your parents equally tough if not tougher questions uh, but really have fun and make it part of your your family experience with us at nhi about continuing the conversations at home and uh, who knows maybe we'll be there recording a podcast alongside of you have a great time getting into the theme for more information on the national hispanic institute please visit our website www.nationalhispanicinstitute.org Call us at 512-357-6137. Find us on Facebook at NHIHQ or on Twitter, NHI underscore news and at Instagram and Snapchat, NHI underscore news.
Thank you to Union Pacific for their generous support as a sponsor of the NHI Podcast Network. Music by Andres Cotto.